Hi, everyone. I'm so excited you're joining us for another episode of The American Dream. In this episode, I sit down with my good friend, Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach, based in Seattle, and another hyper-growth company. And we discuss what The American Dream means to us. The Latino community is one of the most entrepreneurial in this country, but we are often lacking access to capital. Today, Manny and I talk about how to find your seat at the table, leverage your network, and get that money. Enjoy and be sure to let me know what you think by leaving a review or continuing the conversation on LinkedIn or Twitter. I have a very special guest today here, a very good and dear friend of mine. I came to this country in 1993 and we were chasing the American dream. I was like, what is the American dream, right? And we have a definition, right? We just go to Google and we get a definition. And so the American dream is the belief that anyone, regardless of where they were born or what class they were born into, can attain their own version of success in a society where upward mobility is possible for everyone. This is so emotional for me because I came, right? Because I came from a country where I had no future. There was no way because of my last name and my family that I was, that I could go in and attain anything that I wanted, right? It was, I was limited in so many ways. And I came to this country and it's been an, an incredible journey for me, as well as for, for my guests here today. Now more than ever, I think the larger that the Hispanic Latinx population grows in the United States, the more we see that it's so difficult for this dream to be a reality for all of us. And that's really our mission to help, right? We want to be here to share our experiences, our advice, and our connections and our network for you to be successful, for you to attain that success. So today here we have Manny, I think the Manny Medina, CEO of Outreach. There's not a many Latino founders, right, of, of, of VC-backed companies. It's a very rare thing. I knew about Outreach a little bit from the industry. We're in the same space, similar industry, but I didn't even know who he was. And one day I emailed him and I just went and said, we need to create a partnership with Outreach. I emailed him and I was in San Francisco and I said, I'll be there tomorrow. Two hour flight or something like that from San Francisco to Seattle. I show up through the doors and I see him and he's like, hey, he looks like me. He's like, this Latino, where are you from? And he goes, I'm from Ecuador. And I'm like, oh my God, here we go. Hit it off. And it's been an, an amazing connection. So here with us, Manny, please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about where you were raised, your company, and a little bit of your journey to become an amazing entrepreneur. And then we'll talk about outreach. Awesome. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for coming to the office. And and then back when you acquired that company here in Seattle, Sifrock, that's when you came in and visited us. So, yes. and then I ended up at your house having dinner. Like, I think it was a, like a week and a half later. Exactly. Um, we agreed on a partnership. You, you yeah. said, I'm going to, I'm going to jump on a plane. I'm going to head over to Boston. And then you yep. were in my house on Sunday night. And then we, it's, it's, it's been incredible. This is the and important I left, I left thing your house, about Latinas. Your, your wife gave me a bag of roasting pan de yucas, which I haven't eaten in like 10 years. So yeah. that's, that's the first thing. Not only I came to your house, but I took your food too. It was pretty great. It's the Latino way. That's the only way. I know. I know. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Ecuador. I grew up in Guayaquil. I grew up in the south of Guayaquil, which is now a pretty dangerous neighborhood. But I grew up close to the poor. Guayaquil is a busy city. So Ecuador has about, I don't know, like 11 million people, give or take. And about two thirds of them are all in Guayaquil. So Guayaquil is a sprawling city. 
where it's hot, it's muggy, it's loud, and you have to scream to make yourself heard. And, and that's sort of the environment I came from. I grew up in a, in a, in a family that was fairly left. So because of that, we were attached to the wrong political party at all times. So that means that I had no connections to, to what happened in the country. So, and that's pretty limiting, like you said, right? We come from drinking, which you don't have the right last name. Your career is pretty, is pretty limited. Your, your future is pretty limited. So I left at the first chance I could to come to finish university here in the United States. I came in through New Jersey. I studied at Stevens. And in New Jersey, is a, it's a fairly easy way for a Latino to come in because it's so, like, especially in Northern Jersey, there's so many Latinos there that I really know where, you know, where the Colorian restaurant was, where the Peruvian restaurant was, where the, where the, um, the Colombian restaurant, like every, everything you needed to be situated was there. And there's enough people who speak Spanish for you to sort of get used to it. From there, I went to Penn, to my, my grad in computer science, and then I worked for a, group, for a bank. And that's when I realized that the U.S. is whatever, whatever you want it to be. So your story doesn't have to be packed to any industry or to your last name or to where you come from. It's such a big, white canvas of possibility. And it was during my computer science degree that I read a, a paper by, by one Larry Page and, and Sergey Brin about search and the, sort of the possibilities of, of the internet. And that blew my mind. And I realized that I'm in the wrong place. Like I, I need to go and, and be in the West Coast. And somehow I found my way to Amazon. I was really early in the Amazon Web Services team. From there, I learned, you know, again, I saw an, an entrepreneur and I worked with entrepreneur with a series of entrepreneurs for whom everything was possible. At Amazon, nothing was impossible. It, it was an incredible journey to work under Jassy and, and then eventually see Bezos in action. And that was also some, such an inspiration for me that, you know, I went for Microsoft after that. And then one day I had a, what I call my Jerry Maguire moment. I couldn't just, I just couldn't go into work. And I said, I, I quit. I'm out. I'm going to start my own thing. Because if I don't do it now, I wouldn't regret it forever. And this is, again, this country is so incredible in which like the fear of failure is almost not there. You see, I mean, like there's so many other people who will encourage you if you develop your right network that you just have to like know where to look and get the right people together with you and go for it. And that's when it just started. And then it became really frustrating because I'm in Seattle. I'm not connected to the Silicon Valley, you know, VC community. There's two VCs in Seattle. And if you don't belong to a pattern, they won't talk to you. So, right. you know, I clearly couldn't raise money here in Seattle. So I eventually moved to San Francisco and we'll get into the story later, but I moved, yeah. to, moved to San Francisco and got, got to meet everybody and eventually, you know, got to where we are right now. So many things that you're saying, right, are striking a chord with me. Like the people here are not afraid. And this is, this is what makes America great, right? The United States of America. And we're going to touch on a whole bunch of these things, right? But we're such a small community. We, we, we gather you and, and my network, yours and mine. We, we, we have all these people here. I am so blown away, right, by the number of attendees that we have, number of people register. Over 400 of you register. Like, you know, we're going to get close to half of you here. It, it is incredible, the connection that we have and that we feel and that we want to hear. Let's do a little bit, but, but sometimes we just don't know each other. Please give us some numbers for us to understand the magnitude, right? of outreach and what kind of company you're building right so people understand where get a little bit of context of when your stories where your story is coming from right yeah so outreach is a pivot a lot of people have heard the story but we when we when we pivoted into outreach in 2014 we started selling outreach in 2015 we are now about 5,000 customers we have raised over 200 million dollars in capital our last valuation about a year ago came in at 1.14 billion 
and, and we continue to grow in excess of 60% year over year. We employed about 600 people, and I don't know at this point, four, three different countries. And we, we operate in a category that is very early. Again, we have 100,000 daily active users in our platform, but the majority of them are sellers. And there is 6.8 million sellers in the U.S. So the, uh, the space where we operate is just very, very large, and we're just getting right. started. That's incredible. I mean, it's like not only a unicorn company, the one that is valued over a billion dollars is a very rare thing to do, right? It's like not that you cannot start, you know, there's not that many of those companies around, but one started and founded by a Latinx person from Guayaquil that it's, it's, it's incredible. I'm so proud. I'm so proud to call you a, you. a friend you. and, and hear you're a role model for everybody here to learn. So what you've done is nothing short of amazing. Tell us a little bit of really the topic of this webinar today. It's going to be about how do we, how do we raise money? We have so many stats, right? Latin American entrepreneurs are the most entrepreneurial community in the United States. 17% of the U.S. population were the largest uh, minority, right, numerically. The Latino scores in entrepreneurs in the, in the different communities is, is off the charts. But there's one problem. We don't have access to capital. Yep. We, we do not, uh, we don't have access to capital and it really boils down to, we are not making connections with the VC firms. We're not getting through those doors. We either not invited or we do not know how to invite ourselves. And one thing that Latinos know is how to invite ourselves. So we, we just, <laughs> we just need so you to show up. <laughs> we just show up. But the problem is that there's something blocking us, right? Where we do not know where to go. We don't know where the party is. If we know where the party is, we, could, we show up. But so yeah. what we want to hear is keep in mind, tell us from that context, how do we find it? Where is this place? How do we show up? How do we dress? How do we act? And, and what are the requirements, right? Of like, how do, we, how do we get there? So we can get the money to get started to build the kind of companies that you and I are building. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I was, I was having a, a conversation with my son about this not too long ago. I said, is that you have to you have to embrace where you are. Yeah, you can you know, especially as a Latino, especially as an immigrant, you can't be wishing things were better. You know, what I mean, you just have to get real as to where you are and and create a path of where you need to go and sort of be very realistic about how to get there. So for me, I have connections into Silicon Valley. So I don't you know, I know very few people, and I don't know I don't know how to get in. You know, I'm not from Stanford. I didn't I didn't work at Google or Facebook. I just have like all these things that I didn't do. And on top of that, we all Latinos have the, the fundamental problem, which is we don't look like founders that other people have invested in. You see what I mean? Right. And yep. VCs are pattern matchers. They need to find a pattern and you don't fit the pattern. So what are you going to do? So for me, it was a game of, look, I need to meet, I need to figure out a way to start funding from the early days. So for me, it was a, a game of go meet people who can interview the people who will eventually get you to a VC. So I spent my first year in San Francisco just looking for an introduction to investors. And many times it was cold calls to investors saying, hey, I'm new, I'm new in the game. I have this idea. You invested in something like this. Would you mind taking a meeting and, and, and ask for advice? And the second thing that is really important is that you have to have, the, you have, to have a mindset to, get, to be successful. And the mindset that I had in every, in every situation was, I'm going to get this person to like me. He may not fund me. He may not interrupt me, but he will or, or she will like me. And once they like you, you can ask for a favor. And once you ask for a favor, they're in your pocket. And 
one of the things I done early on on me was that when you get when you get an angel to invest in you, they actually like it and you put it to work. So the moment you take I take money from a person, I would say I need five interests to customers and I need five interests to other angels, and they love it. And getting through that through that barrier, through that mental hurdle that you can actually ask people to help you was a big deal for me. It's funny because where we're from, rich people, and I say this in, in, with all the love in the world, tend to be the lazier ones. They don't want to do work, right? They want to give you money and they want you to go away and then come back and just return it in big, you know, in big buckets. In the right. US, it's different. The people who are entrepreneurs who became rich through entrepreneurship, they love to help. You see what I mean? So you have to lean in and that help and say like, give me an intro to somebody else. Give me an intro to all your friends. So one of the things that I broke in early is that to tell you, to actually tell you a story, we started outreach. We went and looked for everybody who invested in something that looked like outreach. And at that right. time, there was a company called Relate IQ that looked like outreach. And Relate IQ just sold for $400 million to Salesforce. So you know what I did? I went to, I went to Angelus and I look at every single angel investor that invested in Relate IQ and I called them. And I'm like, you don't know me, but I got a product you know, that looks like Relate IQ. Let's go make money together again. I made 20 calls. Out of the 20 calls, four responded. And I you know, you know, I got four meetings. And out of those four meetings, the angel, you know, I, I raised, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars. And out of those fifty thousand dollars, they introduced me to four other people and so on and right. so forth. No, that's that, how we that, started. That, that, that's an important thing I, I I want people to realize, right? It's like I got a couple of questions. I see a whole bunch of stuff flying in the chats. One of them is, do you have a technical background, Manny? I don't know. I do, but I haven't thought it in a long time. And Elias makes fun of me because he wants some my get repo and get the name exist when I no, when no, I no, code no. it. No, so, we don't make fun so of each other. Not, not so, so assume I don't. So why do you just assume <laughs> I don't and just leave it at that? Right. So Elias so, does I don't. So so I, I think that the, the big question is if you don't have a technical degree, should that stop you from starting a company? Will that stop you from becoming a unicorn? The answer is Manny? It's absolutely not. Absolutely no. not, right. I think that it is an important lesson. Whatever question you guys ask us about, is that a requirement to build a billion dollar company? The answer is always going to be no. No one should stop you from achieving what you want, right? What you really have to find is you, you have to have a purpose. You have to have a mission, which I think Latinx businesses tend to move more towards that as opposed to white funded companies where they're like more focused on, oh, I'm going to return this much money. I'm going to make this huge valuation, huge profitability. We care about mission maybe more than, than the rest. And so you focus on your mission, you, you focus on your purpose, and you can accomplish it by bringing the team together that complements you. So that, that should not stop you. The other thing that you're doing is that secret of finding your competitors and who funded them. It's an incredible tip. And not to be afraid of reaching out, right? Sometimes I think people don't reach out. What, what's your framework when you send in that message? What do you send? How many times do you send it? that kind of stuff. Any tips around that? Ask for help. You have to put yourself in the mindset that people want to help you. Individuals want to help you. Individuals love the story. So what I love about the, the American dream is that we embody the American dream. And what I love about the culture of Silicon Valley is that they want to make the American dream come true. So even though they don't want to fund you as an institutional investor, individually, they want to like you. You see what I mean? And this is why yeah. like getting into the mindset of like, they want to like me. I want to like them. Let's make this happen. You know what I mean? Right. Let's consummate this relationship with a check. You see what I mean? Yeah. And like, that is not weird and it shouldn't be weird. So uh, like, like you said, a lot of these perceptions are self-limiting beliefs that you just have to get rid of them if you want to be a successful founder. Right. And so I have a question here from Veronica. 
It says, what tips do you have for getting people, VCs, to like you, right? I think you're, you're touching upon that a little bit, but it's a, I think sometimes the, the stereotype is that, hey, I didn't go to the same fancy school that you go, that you, that you went to. I don't yeah. play water polo. I don't play golf. I, you know what I mean? I don't even know all this stuff, right? It's like, yeah, I, yeah, don't, yeah. I didn't grow up in a country club or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do you find similarities, right? How do you find similar interests with those people? What is the definition of they like you? So that's a great question. You probably know this too, Elias, in that VCs will have to spend a lot of time with you. Anybody who invests in you is investing because they want to spend time with you as a person. You see what I mean? Right. You as a business, but also you as a person. And, yeah. and somebody liking you is you take an interest in their likes. You see what I mean? You don't have to have gone to any good school or, in, or have a particular sport. They have other friends who do that already. You see what I mean? You can be their friend with whom they explore new things. So your idea is a new thing. If you match on that, on that level, then you can continue to explore that idea. Everybody has a broad range of interests. Everybody's curious about where you're from. What is like in your, you know, in your town? What, are, you know, what is your upbringing like? And that creates a level of empathy in a, in a connection that people like. And especially one of the advantages that we have is that we are different. And because we're different, we're interesting. And that is a powerful weapon because the VC community loves to engage with this kind of with this kind of people because all of a sudden they can they can say I was the first one who funded X I can invest the first one who funded Y but you have to break through that barrier by getting them to like you and we Latinos have a handful of things up our sleeve one is that we're very emotional we show up right we're not we're yeah. not afraid of talking with our hands we're not afraid of being loud and and that creates a level of difference it's not for everybody so some people will not like you but the people who do will like you a lot. So as long as you have that mindset of like, let's get people to like me and then they get to like my idea and they get to fund my idea and then do it again, you know, 20, 20 times more. That's how I did it at least. That's how it worked for me. Right. Have you faced racism in sales, in fundraising? I talk about this with some of my VCs a lot in that we always seem to get a slightly lower valuation than my, my peer group, like whoever is fundraising around the same time. Like I always get like, you know, a couple hundred million dollars less in evaluation that somebody else would have. And frankly, I put it, I, not, I chalk it off as a the Latino discount. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, they got the Latino discount for funding a, 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 an immigrant Latino who doesn't look like anybody else. But I don't take it too seriously, to be frank, because it, the game is very long. Like you and I are both here to build large companies who are going to be the new large enterprises are going to rule the world. Right. A little bit of dilution in those checks is not going to matter that much. You know what I mean? We're here for the long play. So let's just play the long play. So nobody has said, hey, I'm not going to fund you because you're Latina. I feel like they're going to say, I'm going to give you a little less lower valuation and see if you take it because, you know, you're not from here. So Right. I think I'm one, one, one fundraising round behind you. But uh, I think that uh, the way that I, I went and evaluated Drift was I just did a comparative analysis, you know. And I yeah. asked for more. <laughs> it's like, I remember, yeah. I, I was just like, I, I just wanted, I think my approach in this has been, why not? It's like, I just don't understand how companies are valued, especially in the early stages, by the way, right? Once right, right, you get right. into the later stages, it's all about the numbers. It's all about the growth rate. It's all about productivity, average selling price, churn rate. That one is pretty mechanical. You got to hit right. the numbers. If you don't hit the numbers, you're not going to get the, the valuation. And it's market driven. Yeah. But early days, right, is a little bit of market and it's emotional and it's about you asking for something. I, I remember we our first round at Drift, our valuation was 45 posts, right? 
and right. and we had nothing. I think one of the questions is, you know, do you have a prototype, right? And it was just really based on the team and what we had seen recent companies that had just fundraised, what they had raised. And we we're like, well, I want what Silicon Valley is giving, right? right? It's like, yeah. why, why not? I said, because in Boston, yeah. I, have to, I have to get less. It was just not fair. And so we asked for that until we found the right partner. And, and in that case, it was TRV, which is a firm that really respects immigrants. And, and, and so we made an amazing relationship because we already had some, we knew each other from before, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't have that. I, I forget my, my initial series A evaluation, but it wasn't, it wasn't 45, it was lower than that. And, you, and I was like, sure, you know, all I need is that first check. I, all I need is a chance. You know what I mean? Just, I just need to get in the door. I get in the door, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive this home. So I just need I just need the chance to execute and I can do the rest. So I wasn't that worried and it has worked out well for us. So my, my advice to, to all those or you're listening is that, you know, there will be fluctuation in the in the price of how much people are going to value the company. Just find the right partner, play the long game. This is you, you have many fundraisers ahead of you. So like just just find somebody who's valuing you fairly, who you want to work with, and then you just go. It and it is not only that, but it's like nothing is going to be perfect and this is not the only company you're going to try to build right nobody right. just built right. one company and I, that's it this is exactly. for the rest of my life i like most exactly. companies will fail most companies you know will last two to three years five years and then you know yeah. you have a long life ahead of you most people start company in their 40s so don't need to think that everything's going to be done perfectly that's how we learn what we need is more at bats right right how did you know that I question here, Merlene, how do you know if you have a good idea and like you should go get funding? What are the challenges there? So I don't know the answer to that question, but I think the easiest way to find out is if you can get as an early stage, as an early stage idea is if you can convince 10 people to give you money, like pick a number, five, 10, whatever. If you can convince 10 people to give you money, even if the idea is bad, you're a really good salesperson. So just go with it. Right. I think that this, this makes me think of, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about was storytelling, right? That's right. And, that's right. and so that's right. I think that it's like, go convince 10 people. That's great. But the question is, you need to be able to convince, you know, 5,000 customers, right? You need to be able right. to convince a larger market, more investors. You know, some, some of my rounds, we, we talked to 30 different VC firms, right? And, and, and you're right. going to get a lot of no's, right? And so I think that that happens to all of us. Tell me about the story, right? I think that I see this personally, right? When, when, when Latinx come and they, they tell me their story, they're so passionate about their idea, but they're not really connecting it to the larger market. Because yeah. what, what VCs want is like, how is this going to become a billion dollar company? And let's right, make right, sure right, that we right. all understand. So tell us, a little, what is your story? What is the outreach story when you first started fundraising? So that's really interesting. So my story is a little bit different because... We, when we started fundraising, we already had raised about half a million dollars from angels. And we, not only we had a prototype, we came into the marketing, we already had a million dollars in run rate, meaning we were generating a million dollars when we fundraised. Wow. So, Amazing. so we were fundraising. It was more about, look, salespeople need a workflow and they, they, we can provide them a lot of automation and remove things from what they do day to day and make their life easier and create more opportunities for them. And this is what we do. And by the way, there is... 6.8 million salespeople in the U.S. and we sell this thing for about at that point it was seventy dollars per seat per month. So you right. do the math, right? Like the TAM in the U.S. alone is north of ninety is is north of, is north of like ten billion dollars. Right. You, you see, so like you need to appeal to the greed and the key of the story is that the story needs to resonate, but it also needs to point to a large market without you having to squint too much, 
right? If you have to say, hey, this is a great idea because if I only get a 1% of the Chinese population, I'm going to be rich. I'm like, no, 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 no. It needs to be easy to get and it needs to be without you making a lot of jumps. You see what I mean? Like just make one, one big jump. 6.8 million sellers in the US, we sell to salespeople, done. You know what I mean? Like pick a number that is big because they know that even if you miss, it's still a really big market and you can pivot. Right. That's one aspect of the story is the, you, you did the back of the envelope real quick, right? How many sales reps are in the United States? Yeah. How much you sell per seat and how many you already gotten, right? You've got a, a million dollars. Momentum is very important. How quickly you do those things, right? Yeah. You always have to really take the best part of the story. If it sometimes, it, if it takes you, 10 years to build a company, right? Everybody thinks that everything happens overnight, but it takes you 10 years. But it's the past year that you've done the most growth when you really started selling it, when you figure out that product market fit. Well, that's the part of the story you're going to say, right? It's right. like you, right. people need to know what's really happening now and where the shift, the, 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 the explosion starts kicking in because that's when they want to jump in, yeah. right? The thing that is important is that you have to be different. So when you're pitching, go for a memorable you see what I mean? Like my serious days, my serious A deck had three slides. We sell to salespeople. There are 6.8 million of them. And this is my revenue growth to date from zero to a million in six months. That's it. Wait, which, hold on. Which, the series E? My series A. My series A, my okay, series okay. A pitch had three okay. slides. Why? Because the, after the three slides, people are like, what? what? Tell me more. We're like, how are you doing this? Like, what, what's, you know, why is this important? You know what I mean? Like, you want them to walk into your story. Like you want to, you want to open up with like the boom, right? And then, and then engage them into like, well, we build this workflow and we realize that you know, Salesforce doesn't provide all the pieces that they need. So we build this other thing, blah, blah, blah. So you can actually walk them through you know, the story, but you need to hook it early. You see what I mean? Like find something that you know is going to hook them early, like a big market, big TAM, some momentum, a lot of registers, something, and then go uh-huh. into it. Absolutely. Did you have memorable. like, don't be like everybody else. Like, you know, that's it. That's the main thing for me. Yeah. We're very memorable. We're very loud. It's a, what, <laughs> right, right, right. so what happens? So what, did you have a personal story around that? What did I, I believe in a lot of personal stories, right? Did you come in? I, I've heard stories about you. Tell us some of those. Did you use someone fundraising? Like I heard, I think it was Adam or something. I heard people say, Oh, I I've been using outreach from, from, uh, from day one. When I got onboarded by by Manny on Saturday at two p.m. because they had, <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's like, yeah. do you did you use any of the stories in fundraising? Because it's like that's what shows the the investors the the draw, the pull that you're getting from your from your yeah. customer base, right? So that's a really good question. So we 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 did. So outreach, as you know, is a pivot, and we built outreach in a previous company that was called Group Talent that did not work, and we were running out of cash. So. We decided we, we needed to build something to generate, to generate more meetings because we figured that if we generate enough meetings, we're actually going to be able to generate cash to pay, our, to pay ourselves. So we built this workflow that did both personalization and automated follow-up. It was very simple. You had like a one-liner personalization on every email and it will follow up with everybody else after that until somebody answered. So we built that. We released it internally and we generated like 20x more meetings per rep than, than we right. had. Then we run into the next problem, which is we actually didn't have enough reps to handle the meetings. So what we decided to do is try to sell the meetings and we will go to agencies and be like, I will sell you meetings. And they were like, right. where are you getting these meetings? And they were like, well, we built this engine internally that allows us to generate meetings. And they were like, I don't know, I want to buy the engine. So after like 50 of those conversations, we're like, guys, we, we really got to pay with the company and, and, and build this. That story resonated with everybody. 
you know, and, and I think, I don't know whether the story is because I'm a good storyteller, the story is very compelling, or because I sound like Slack, right? Slack is also a pivot, a pivot like that. So yeah. like, I don't know exactly what made it pop, but that was a story that I've been telling since, you know, since we started, because that's how we got started. And, and then that generated a lot of traction. I think you, you just really, yeah, I, I, that is a very, very important point. This is the journey of companies for everybody here, right, attending today. A journey in a company to a successful company is never a straight line. It's like, oh, we right. figured this and this is what we built. And then we built this and we sold this and we sold that. And then it'll just work. Companies have to go through so many different struggles and you really have to be a, pay attention. You cannot fall in love with your first idea because it might not be a good one, right? It might not be big right. enough. You might not have the right people. The market timing might not be there. And so what, what you did is it's, it's a very smart thing, right? You were paying attention to the situation and you started seeing where people were, were, were looking at part of what you had created. And so that is an important thing that allows you to reset, reset the clock when you're pitching. So like you went and pitched before for group talent and then you go and that's not making progress and then you pivot. Then you can go pitch again and say, let me tell you, you need an excuse. You need a compelling event when you're pitching to investors. I got to let you know what happened. They yeah. love, they eat this stuff for breakfast, right? Yeah. We were doing this and you know what? That was a dumb idea. We found this and it's yeah. amazing. It's blowing up. You got to jump in right now and you got to create that scarcity, right? You got to create exactly that, right. that FOMO. Yeah. And so I think that is, keep that in mind. Pivots are your way to reset the conversation, to start over and to show people that you're learning. I have investors told me, for Drift, we, we did like about seven different ideas in the first two years of Drift. And our investors were saying, can you please coach some of my portfolio early stage companies that it's okay to pivot, it's okay to tack, it's okay to, to not be so stubborn sometimes. So and that's it's important. Because there, there is a stigma around pivoting, like, you know, that it's hard to be fund on pivots, that, you know, you have all this baggage. And I, I don't think it is. When you own the pivot, that shows resilience. That shows that you really listen, that you're really good at taking feedback and that you make the right choices for the company. So yeah. I don't know where I heard that advice that it's bad for, you know, to be a pivot, that people like the clean stories. I think that's completely absurd. Yeah, you were I telling me earlier. We'll, we'll go back into that about bad advice that we get out there, right? What, what, yeah, okay, yeah. let's just jump into that. What, give me the many, not only the secrets, but it's like, what do you think is bullshit advice out there that we get? I got a list for that. All right, so the first, first bad advice, is to is that you need to raise a round of cash. Do you need a lead? And that is bad advice. You don't need a lead. You just need cash in the bank. So if you find somebody who's interested, don't. If that person tells you, "Hey, I'm willing to jump in," when you have a lead, screw it. You make your own decision. How much money are you willing to put at what valuation? Just get the cash in. That's the first right. bad advice. Second bad advice is all about you know it's good to soft circle money and then execute the round. That's also bad advice. Because there is no such thing as self-circling. You can't pay rent and salaries in yourself with self-circle money. You need real hard cash in the bank. The third piece, this is a bit more complicated, is that you have to raise on a price round. And that is not true. You can raise as much money as you want at any point in time on a convertible note. Meaning you right. literally, you go and download a convertible note from one of the websites, and then you can say, you can put their own, your own valuation there, your own discount rate, and whatever amount of money that person wants to put in. So you don't have to price your company early on. You can just say, hey, how about you invest you know, $50,000 at a $5 million cap, zero discount? 
and, and it's all a conversation, right? Like it depends on how you're feeling, how they're feeling, what gonna, what's going to get the deal done. You don't need a serious A, B, C price round to get it done. You just need the money. So don't be beholden by this advice because it doesn't work. Just do whatever you need to do to get it done. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fantastic. Bad advices. Bad advices, yeah. I think that there's different types of businesses that the Latinx can, can actually start. And, and I want to make sure that I, I create those categories. The one that we're talking about here the most is really VC-backed tech company to be on par as any company in the Silicon Valley, right? And so this is kind of like outreach, direct, and others, right? So that's that's number one. Second is the ones that the we Latinx can do that no one else has the, the, the insight or the visibility to do it, right? And so, for example, we're talking about we understand the need for teaching English to a large population in the United States, right? for minorities. We know things that are happening in Latin America. So we have a special lens to see those problems that most of the white founders are not going to ever see, right? And so there's great companies, I think it's Open English, right? In, in Colombia, Rappi, there's just so many fantastic businesses out there because we have a, a, an edge. We have a, an angle, a perspective that other. So you can start one of those companies. You can start one of the normal tech companies that is just tackling the, the whole market. And then there's also businesses like, you know, smaller businesses, lifestyle businesses that, that our, our community is so good at and that we just need to help them build to have, you know, make better business decisions. For the case of, of VC tech uh, funding, right, I think there's a lot of things that we just don't know. What is the process? You just go and talk to them and they just give you uh, $100 million? Is that how it works? And so I want to I wanna just say that the basic process, so we understand that it's going to take many layers, right? And this is the, the steps are you first have to get that introduction to a VC firm. You have to then get your first through third meetings with them. This is a very rough you know, process. Then there's due diligence. When you have developed a relationship during those meetings, it's like you have to give them the details of what you're building, where you now both are going to go and dive in into your progress, the market, in order for them to justify bringing you into a partner meeting where the partners are going to make a decision, the go, no go, whether to fundraise. And then you're going to have to discuss terms, right? Because they're going to present the term sheet. And lastly, it's like you wait for the process to get the funding. So that is for, for everybody here to understand what does it take, you know, with just one investor to get from zero to money. So let's talk about that from your perspective. What, what lessons, you know, you talked about introductions already. I think you just knocked on every door, get as many as possible. What about those first meetings? Like, tell us what, what have you learned from those? I'm a little bit different. Or maybe I'm, I'm very similar to the people on, on, online is that because I don't have a connection in Silicon Valley, my, I spent a lot of my time since so from, from that first year in which I, I, I raised half a million dollars from almost 40 people. I continue the momentum in that I always meet with investors. And the reason I do that is because I want them to already know me by the time I need to fundraise. So I'm always about a year ahead of where or who I need to know before I ask for the cash. And to be frank, I still do it. We're sitting on $140 million in the bank. We are, you know, we're still growing. We don't need the money, but I still do it. And now I meet with different kinds of investors, right? I now meet right. with public funds and I meet with buy-side analysts. And, and the reason I do it is because you never, A, Fundraising is what you do when you're a founder. You never stop 
fun because you're always selling yourself, you're selling your team, you're selling your company, you're selling every everything, everything. Right. My process has been that I always I keep a number of five to ten firms that I talk to constantly and I give them updates. And then when I decide to fundraise, you stop and you say, all ten of you, I'm fundraising and this is a timeline. So that that way they know you can knock out a fundraising in two weeks if you're that organized. You see what I mean? If you put all the work up front to make sure that they know you, then you can say, here's my data. Here's the meetings. You're going to meet, first of all, you're going to meet with all the executives on day one. And then on day five, we're going to go and meet with your team so that you can have that partner meeting then. And then we're going to get term sheets. It, it works really effectively for me. And I've raised all $200 million of cash and every single one of the rounds took about two weeks to raise. But you have to do all the work up front. The other way to do it is to say, I'm not taking the meetings until I'm ready to race, and I'm going to meet with 20 people, and then I'm going to get to your fees. That's also a good way to do it. I don't like it because I, I feel like, you know, I, if I'm going to partner with somebody, I want, that, I want to know that person really well, and I want that person to know us really well because, again, we're, we're different. And I think that this is to the point that you were making before. When, when we Latinos build companies, we build them in, in different ways. You know what I mean, we have yeah. different cultures because the cultures reflect who we are. So I want them to know all that coming in before they write a check. That's how, that's how I do it. Incredible. Incredible. What about due diligence, right? What nuggets for, for us there? Because, you know, we have some of the questions here are like, when is the right, the right time to ask for funding, right? That might be connected to it. Or like, what do you have to have ready to show, right? During that process, what kind of questions are okay? What kind of questions are rough? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's tricky because this is why you, you spend time getting to know the, the, the firms that you want to engage with or the people who are going to write your checks is because they, you want them to know exactly where they are, right? Like if, if they're expecting you to have $10 million run rate before they write a check and you're only at five, forget it. Let's just don't do it. You know what I mean? I, I'll call you in a year and then we'll, we can start talking and then whatever. So you, you know their due diligence questions by how they interact with you. So you need to anticipate those questions. They can't, if they are a surprise to you by the time you're fundraising, you're already screwed. You see, I mean, because they're going to ask for stuff that you don't know that you have, that you need, et cetera. And they're just going to, it's just going to be a bad experience. So you want to guide that due diligence around the things that you want them to know. You want them to know your customers, your happy customers. You want them to know who's using your product and how they're getting value from it. You want them to know your great team that you built over the last two years. And you want them, the diligence to sort of like go in that direction, you know, as opposed to like call all the ex-employees and call like all the people who churn and call the people who are not happy with you and call your friend in high school who never liked you. Like you don't want any of that shit to happen in your life. So you just, just make sure you tighten up that relationship so they do diligence go exactly the way that you need it to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think that right now we, we see there's so much to talk about and there's so much to talk about related to COVID as well. Now, w- what about profitability versus you know, companies that are just racing on growth or, or in the future. How do you start a company in this, in this day and age? You Is this the right time to start one? Profitability. You have to show up to profitability. Like, and, and it sounds like a lie, but people sort of live on this lie of that whatever money you raise, it has to show that it's going to get you to cash flow positive. If you raise $5 million, you have to show a plan that gets you to cash flow positive on $5 million. If you, show, if you raise $50 million, you have to show up path to profitability in $50 million. But you have to show up path to profitability. Right, right. That's, that's an important thing. I think it's back to the due diligence, right? It's that I think in the past, we used to say maybe, okay, what am I going to do with $5 million, right? right. Where am I going to take the company? How much in sales would, you know, we, we can reach, you know, ARR or, or nature, number of customers, market penetration. But you're saying that now your pitch needs to say, how long would it take you to get to profitability with $5 million, with $10 million? Exactly. Yep. Exactly. It's a, it's a new world right now. And you look at the market, 
the stock market right now is rewarding those who are profitable and punishing those who are not. So it's a new world and it will change eventually, but that's where we live right now. Right. I see a question on the, on the chat that says, can you talk about your key challenges prior to outreach? I don't know. There's so many. I don't even know where to start. You know? I, I think I saw another question that said, like, what about the glass ceiling, right? If you, where you are, you work at a company and you're, you're, did you, did you ever feel like at Amazon or other uh, places you were at Microsoft too? Like, did you, did you reach a glass ceiling? I, I, maybe I did, but I just didn't, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm pretty sure that I did, but I just, I just never, I mean, maybe this happened to you too, but like, I never like saw myself being like a VP somewhere. Like, you know what I mean? Like that just wasn't in my imagination. What, you, you, didn't, never, you didn't want to be Satya Nadella? No. No, I was like, that's going to take forever. Like, I don't have, like, who has time for that? You know what I mean? Like, no, I, I, I didn't. So they, I did have challenges, though. And the challenges are, you know, I came to this country when I was 21. And my English was atrocious. So it took me a long time to get my English to be where I can even, like, go out to a bar, right? So, like, it took me a long, like, it took me a year to get there. And then once I got a job, then it took me a while. It took me like another year to get to where my English was like, you know, professional. You know, my, my emails were, you know, a disaster when I, when I started working. So like I had to do a lot of like self-reading, right? Like I read, there's a book called Elements of Style by, yeah. um, by Willem Strunk. I swear by that book, like everything I know about English came from that book. And then I would make, a, I would literally make a list every day of like five words that make me sound more professional than I did now. So I would sit down, read the Wall Street Journal, and I will highlight five words, I'll write them down, and I will use them that day in some kind of like context so that I will memorize them. And I would do that like every day. Like I, it, being great at communication and sounding professional was, it's a big deal. And I spent a lot of time doing that. So I would say that that's, that was the number one challenge that I, that I faced when I came to the US. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my, my advice for people, if you're reaching a glass ceiling, as a business founder, right? I really implore you to speak up, right? I think that you have, you, you get, you have power. You're, you're, you have power because of your feet. You're at a company and you can walk out. That is the power that you have, right? That's how okay. you really show whether you, you want to be there or not. And so I think that for us, I want to hear from you, you know, before, if you feel like you're reaching a glass ceiling, and so you, you got to go and speak up because in the end, I think a lot of people don't say anything out of some fear of speaking up. And then when, they're, when nothing gets resolved because you don't speak, then you end up quitting and then you go somewhere else. So if you're going to quit anyways, why not just speak up and say whatever is wrong, whatever you feel and go talk to people because people, you might be surprised. Maybe more people are willing to hear us, right? Than, than what we think. And then you can make that change. And if you can avoid making a change, you don't want to be with that resume that is like changing every year, right? In a new different position. You want to show that you have the ability, stability and ability to grow within a company. That's what we're looking for when we're hiring talent. And so I think that do that, go talk, go speak up. It doesn't matter. You got to do that just like if you would be starting a company. And then if not, go somewhere else where you're not going to have that ceiling. I have a question here for you, Manny. What do you advise to women founders? That's a great, that's a great question. And I, I feel like women founders will have the same challenges that, that we do as, as, as just not being part of the, the pattern, that we don't fit anybody's pattern. So you're going to have to have the same. So my advice is that, is that acknowledge where you are. Like, don't wish the world was different. Just see the world as it is and, and go and make it happen. Like, go like I did 
build a network of people who like you, who are willing to invest in you, who like your idea, who can advise you, who can be there for the long term. One of the things I didn't mention is that I have a series of other founders who advise me in different periods of the company who are still my friends. And I would have made many more mistakes if it wasn't for those founders, right? Like I remember one, one of those is this guy called Dan Adika, who's the founder of WalkMe. He's an Israeli entrepreneur, also an immigrant. I remember he sat me down this one night. It was Sunday night. It was Sunday night at the W Hotel in San Francisco. I think it was like 11 p.m. He, I bought him a drink. And he told me like the story, his company, and every mistake he made. And I just like wrote down pages and pages of notes. And I went back to my founders. I was like, guess what? This is the shit that we're not doing. You know what I mean? Like it was very clear, like exactly what are the mistakes we're not going to make. And I, I like, you know, women entrepreneurs to do that. It's like, go find a group of network that will support you, that will fund you, that will be there with you. Go find mentors who can help you go from point A to point B and surround yourself with positive attitude and can-do attitude and just go get it done. You know what I mean? And then, and then the last thing is make sure that you should send the elevator downstairs. You know, if you make it the series B, go help out somebody who's the seat stage. If you make it series yeah. A, A or C or D, go help out somebody who's the series A. You know, don't be selfish and just make sure that you bring up the rest of the community with you. My philosophy is that we're going to have to go, we're going to have to find commonalities to build relationships with people. And so you're going to have to go with whoever looks the closest to you and you're going to have to search to find them, right? Right. So if you're a woman, I would go find women investors, right? And then like, they'll understand you much faster than, than, than we would. But then yeah. after that, if you can't find them, then come and talk to the Latinx, right? Because at least we have the commonality there. We have yeah. to stick to our people and then we keep expanding. And speaking of women founders, I have one here, Edisa Rodriguez. She has a question here. We, we talked before, we, we connected. She's using the network. She reached out to me and we had a great call. She's asking, what is it? We got to talk about COVID a little bit. Have you started to see the impact during COVID? What advice do you have for SaaS companies that are seeing the impact? There's definitely impact in COVID. And, and what we're seeing is that comp- you have to make sure that you're selling into markets that are still growing. So I don't, I don't know what it's like for consumer companies. So let me start with that. I only know B2B companies. So for B2B right. companies, make sure that you're selling into an area that is still growing. And if you're not selling into an area that's still growing, make sure that you pivot quickly to an area that is still growing. I don't know how long this is here to stay, but don't count on like the government turning this thing around. This thing doesn't seem like it's it's have any heads or or feet right now. So go make sure that you are continue to sell into an areas of growth. Like you know, IT spend is still growing. You know, telemedicine is still growing. Banking and insurance is still growing. So make sure that you have a product for that and go sell it. Yeah, I wanted to to plug so on the previous question. I wanted to say something real quick. There is networks of people out there who who will fund or will, or will, or will sort of co- coach and mentor women. And the reason I'm saying this is because one of my earliest pitches was to a group of women called Broadway Angels. Broadway Angels, I think, is 10 women in San Francisco who are loosely affiliated, but they fund companies. And they took me in. I mean, it's really hard to get in. You have to be referred by somebody. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of a hard network to get in. But once you get in, you know, they will bring you in. You will do the pitch. And they become, and even if they all of you, all of them don't give you money, some of them will, and they will become your lifelong friends. So yep. two of them did, and they're still like one of them sits on my board, and the other one is like one of the most wow. connected women in Silicon Valley, Ellen Levy. And I call them all the time, and they introduce me to other people. One of them just introduced me to a board member. And like it's just like just make sure that you get into those communities because they're important. They're here to support you. There's a question from Ignacio that says, "What are some of the mistakes you made, and how did you recover from them?" Have you made mistakes, uh, Manny? Nacho, I have a catalog of mistakes. I, I don't even know where to, like where you, where you want me to start. Yeah, I made I, I, uh, the biggest the biggest mistake you ever made. <laughs> I, uh, 
Jesus. What is the biggest mistake? I, I, I don't know. The, 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 probably the biggest mistake that I made was to stay at Microsoft for too long. I think that if you're going to start, start soon. Don't think about it too much. Take the risk. and You won't regret it. Either way, you're going to be happy whether you fail or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. Let me see. I'm going to look for another question, and I'm going to wrap up here. How do you find mentors? What do you think? Mentors are really hard because they have to have the time, they have to have the experience, they have to be relevant to you, and they need to be able. It's, it's, there's a lot of chemistry in that mentorship. So you're gonna have, you just have to meet a lot of people, and the mentorship is gonna come from, from the. You're gonna know, and that person's gonna know when the mentorship is happening, and you're gonna just latch on, and that's gonna happen. And the second thing that I want to make sure that I advice is that the mentorship only lasts for so long, right? A mentor is good for a period of your life and then you need to move on and it's fine. So make sure that you have this mentality that, you know, you're here together for a, for a reason. And then when the reason stops, you can still be friends, but you need new yeah. mentors. Absolutely. There's another question here. What are you reading? Is reading important? I, I read, I read a lot. I read a lot. So I, I read all sorts of things, but the most important book that I read that I recommend everybody to read is called Think Fast, Think Slow. And the reason it's important and it's so important to me is because it lists all the different sort of ways in which you fool yourself. Like all these different biases and ways that you think about that you think are correct, but they're not. The number one problem you're going to have in this industry is this, the ability to believe that you are right all the time. Yeah, I have, exactly. So all, the, all those are incredible reads. For entrepreneurs, the hard thing about the hard things is one of the most fun, super valuable reads that I read in a long time. There's just, there's just a lot out there to read. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, this is what we do. This is something that, this is my book here, What's Your Problem? I highly, I cannot encourage this more. This is something I started really late in my career. David, my, my partner, CEO at Drift, is just obsessed with books. And the most successful people on earth don't stop reading. If you watch the Bill Gates documentary, I highly recommend it. You're going to see how he carries just books on every trip that he goes. You have to read. I cannot recommend that much higher. Drift, one of our Drift leadership principles is called be a curious learning machine and really spend all your money buying books and just have them all over your place and just read them and, and look look at it and look at it over again. You're going to learn something different every time. So I think we're going to start wrapping up. I really have a question here from, I'm going to, I'm going to close this with, you know, obviously, and, and thank, you know, Manny for, for taking the time out of his busy, really busy schedule to do this. We, we have to pay it forward and we have to be available for our community, for our people. And from John, we have a question that says, before seeking funding or even starting a SaaS type of company, what are the milestones that one has to have reached personally, spiritually, or even professionally to go through in order to start a business? Or in other words, how did you know where you were ready to start a business? What gave you the confidence to do so? What, what would you say there, Manny? I don't know that there's milestones. You, I mean, so there's no milestones. Just, just, just go do it. You're never going to be ready. It's like being a father. You're never ready to be a father or a mother or whatever. Like you, just, you think you are, but you're not. You know what I mean? Like there's so much new things that are going to come at you. You need to find an ability to, to find calmness because this shit is hard and this treacherous and, and unpredictable. So you have to be comfortable with that. But outside of that, just go do it. I think that the reason why I picked that as the last question is that what we are doing here is to encourage all of you to understand that there is no requirement for entrepreneurship. There yeah. is no, we, the, the American dream, right, is, is the place where we can all 
have find a way to find our own success and be in a society where we can all find upward mobility, right? And to find your own version of success. That not everybody has to be building a billion dollar company. And so I think that what we're saying to you is that remove any preconceived you know, notion of what you have to have accomplished. Did you go to Harvard? Did you not go to Harvard? Did you go to Princeton? Did you go to this? Did you educated in Latin America or not? Did your family have money? Do you speak English? Do you have an accent? Please, please, please forget about those things. Go yeah. do it. Go solve a problem that has a potential, a meaningful impact in the lives of many and that they're willing to pay you for that, right? And, and then we do that. I, I do like to separate my philanthropic, my societal benefits and, and rewards I want to give to, the, to that. I want to make money first. And then I want to go do that. And I think sometimes we combine those things too much. And I want to make sure that you understand, go solve somebody's problem and you will find someone to back you, someone that wants to help you. We need to believe in ourselves because the reason why people want to like you and be friends in the Valley, everybody's talking to everybody and you never know who's going to become who. And so everybody is very respectful, believe it or not, right? But we have to get out there and we have to go knock on some doors. So remember... Just go and uh, invite yourself to the party. And we, we invite you. Thank you very awesome. much. Good job. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Thanks for listening to The American Dream. Let me know what you thought of this episode by tweeting me at Elias T. Be sure to hit subscribe and leave a five-star review. Por favor. If you're looking for more leadership insights and stories like the ones you just heard, sign up for my series, The American Dream, at drift.com slash American-Dream. Every quarter, you'll learn how Drift is progressing towards our mission of remaking the face of corporate America. And you will get insights from amazing Latin American and entrepreneurs of color and leaders like Manny Medina of Outreach, Maria Martinez of Cisco, and many others, along with curated content news, events, and ideas delivered straight to your inbox. Muchas gracias, and don't forget to sign up.